0: Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Center for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Um, Hi and welcome to Stem Cells at Lunch Digested. I'm Eva Hamrod, a PhD student at the Center for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ivo Leverham, a Senior Lecturer in Developmental Neurobiology at King's College London. Hi, Ivo. How are you?
1: Hello. Thank you for inviting me, Eva.
0: Uh, Could you please explain in lay terms what's the main focus of your research group?
1: Yeah, so my group is interested in neuromuscular circuits. So these are nerve cells and muscle which are connected and which uh, together have the task of, uh, of mediating motor function. So basically all the movements and also, say, secretion of hormones by glands are controlled by the central nervous system, in particular by the output layer of the central nervous system. Which are called motor neurons. And the neuromuscular circuit is essentially the connection of these motor neurons to muscle, which is the way how muscle is made to contract on cue by the brain. And we are mostly using in vitro models, so models that can be uh, made in tissue culture. And one of the reasons for that is that it has increasingly become clear that there are real genetic differences between mice and us. And if you want to capture these, differences. In particular, in the context of human diseases, you then would have to do the study with human cells. And because there's severe limitations on what you can ask, say, a patient suffering from neuromuscular disease to do, uh, you would have to do that artificially in a cell culture format where you simulate human tissue with defined cell types, such as nerve cells and muscle.
0: In your talk, you mentioned that you're making these model systems using specifically iPSCs. Could you maybe explain what they are and why they're particularly useful for these models?
1: Yeah, so induced peripotent stem cells are similar to another type of early stem cell called embryonic stem cells. But whereas embryonic stem cells are derived from early pre-implantation human embryo, Uh, iPSCs can be made from almost any uh, adult cell type, such as a fibroblast from your skin. So you can take a little skin biopsy. And then through genetic engineering, so a method first described by Shinya Yamanaka, you can turn back the genetic clock in these cells and make them into cells that uh, resemble embryonic stem cells uh, without having to sacrifice embryo. And one of the other advantages of this approach is that you don't actually have to do your research with the genotype of an embryo. You can uh, use any genotype, such as the uh, a disease gene a patient might carry, make embryonic-like cells from the patient, and then build your model with, uh, with cells that have an authentic genotype uh, of a disease.
0: Great, and what kind of diseases in particular are you looking to try to model?
1: Yeah, So in general, of course, you can use iPSCs for any kind of disease because you can theoretically at least make any cell from it. Um, In our case, we are interested in neuromuscular disease, so primarily in in diseases that affect uh, the nerve cells that control muscle function. But in collaboration, we've also started to work on muscle diseases such as muscle dystrophies. The challenge for modeling these diseases is that you have to make both the motor neurons and the the myofibers and then make the two cell types connect in the culture dish because uh, motor neurons in your body are essentially defined by their connectivity to muscle. And if you generate a model that doesn't include this connection uh, to muscle, it is a very bad approximation uh, to to the normal situation and also to what you see in human disease. So I think that is the specific challenge in the type of disease models we are building in my lab. What
0: kind of uh, techniques or tools have you been looking into to try to overcome that challenge?
1: Yeah, so uh, historically uh, I'm a geneticist and stem cell biologist. Uh, I've worked in a number of different fields. I've worked in immunology for a while during my PhD. Um, so the biological tools are something which I've been familiar with for, I don't know, last 20 years or so. But uh, as we entered this uh, area of, uh, of generating artificial tissue from defined cell types de- derived from IPSCs, a challenge essentially, uh, we're facing a, a challenge that I didn't fully appreciate uh, when I made the decision to work on this. And the challenge is that you have to generate an artificial environment that resembles the normal extracellular environment you would have in the body. For these cells to, for example, not collapse spontaneously, and in order to do that, I've started to systematically uh, collaborate with uh, with engineers and physicists to build these types of scaffolds. Uh, so that is something which is quite different from the work I did uh, while I uh, was working in mouse genetics. For example, you you don't have sophisticated polymer chemistry. Uh, when you look at the mutant phenotype in a mouse. But you do have to do these things, uh, not yourself, but in collaboration, uh, if you want to uh, approximate human tissue.
0: Why do you think um, these scaffolds, are they particularly important in in this context with the muscle as opposed to other cell types that someone might want to grow in the lab? Yeah,
1: so uh, the... Cell type I was most familiar with from uh, my work as a postdoc in New York uh, were motor neurons and also to some degree glial cells. They're quite easy to culture. You can just put them on a straight plastic dish and they'll grow. And if you have the right uh, medium composition, they'll survive for months at least. Uh, The cell type, which is much more difficult to culture, um, is uh, uh, the essentially the building block of muscle called myofibers. So these are fusions of several um, muscle progenitor cells. And uh, as you can imagine, their defining characteristic is that they contract when they are stimulated. And this contraction uh, poses a huge problem for stable tissue culture, because if you put them on a rigid surface, once they contract, they just live off and uh, your model is destroyed. So the challenge is to build uh, and a synthetic scaffold that resembles normal structures like tendons, for example, which anchor muscle to bones uh, that allows uh, flexibility and allow my fibers to contract without uh, destroying themselves. So that, I think, in terms of mechanics, if you like, uh, was the main uh, challenge for building these models.
0: We've talked a lot about how to make the models and uh, what they kind of look like. But what is the sort of end goal with these um models of disease. So what would you like to see them being used for?
1: Um, I guess you could use these models for at least two different applications. You could go down a more basic science route if you like and understand uh, the fundamental defects, cellular defects usually, uh, of of diseases. Um, You could also apply this type of model for more practical purposes if you like. Uh, and uh, use them to test candidate drugs on authentic patient tissue, which I guess is a much better uh, uh, tool than uh, using uh, animal models, and it's also a lot cheaper and faster. There's a, another reason why I'm doing these projects, and that is to develop uh, tools that can later be uh, applied, uh, that can be later manipulated for uh, a more eccentric uh, Type of project, if you like, which is the idea of using implanted optogenetic, so light-sensitive motor neurons, implanted together with optoelectronic uh, pacemakers to control uh, bodily functions and to form uh, what is called a body-machine interface. So you would essentially use these cells as part of a machine, not as normal regenerating tissue, and. Uh, The key feature that is different from, say, an electrode or uh, or some kind of synthetic uh, component of a prosthesis is that these machines could then form normal biological connections to host tissues such as uh, skeletal muscle and, for example, drive um, breathing in patients where the normal connection between the CNS and uh, breathing muscles have been lost.
0: What kind of diseases then, you mentioned this respiratory uh, failure it could be, do you think, could be helped by such a device?
1: Yeah, so so this device, uh, essentially a, a neural implant that can uh, drive uh, muscle, such as uh, a breathing muscle called the diaphragm, uh, would not be specific to any disease mechanism. So you could use it in neuromuscular disease, such as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And uh, you could, in the first instance, just keep the patient alive by artificially driving breathing musculature and later on you could think about uh, maybe reconstituting other types of motor function as well uh, but in principle you could apply that to anything where the connection between the brain and uh, muscle is disrupted so uh, it would be plausible for example to use the same technology for, sp- uh, for spinal cord injury.
0: Great so we've talked a bit about um, modeling disease and also these uh optogenetic devices. Uh, What else have you been working on in your group?
1: We have a few other interests. Most of them are uh, connected to motor function in one way or another. Um, We have a collaboration on spinal cord injury that uses a slightly different approach but uh, also involves uh, stem cell derived uh, neural tissue. Um, And uh, then there are some uh, versions of these in vitro models of neuromuscular circuitry we are investigating. So uh, one type of model we are building has a different target, namely uh, uh, hormone-producing cells in the adrenal medulla that uh, not, that produce adrenaline and control the stress response basically. So that model would also have motor neurons innovating these uh, so-called chromatin cells and it could be used to study diseases that relate to uh, sympathetic dysfunction and uh, and and increased stress. Um, the other interest I have, which is, well, probably even more esoteric than the one in uh, in these hybrid uh, neuroprostheses, is uh, bio robots. So uh, we think, and that is a, another collaboration with uh, with an engineer, um, Hui Song at UCL. So, we think that it would be uh, desirable to develop robots that use skeletal muscles or biological tissue for locomotion so they could swim actively uh, and use myofibers in the same way we do. They would not be an organism. So, these myofibers would be controlled by an optoelectronic uh, brain. But the advantage would be compared to purely electronic and mechanical robots uh, that the robot could extract most of its energy in the form of glucose from the bloodstream. And there are um, indications such as existing insects uh, called fairy wasps that uh, such a musculoskeletal system can be very small. So fairy wasps are parasitic wasps, they live in in ponds, including in in England. And uh, the smallest of these these insects, even though they have dozens of muscle groups, they have a brain, and they can fly around and interact with the environment, The smallest of these uh, insects are only 150 microns long. So that is as big as a paramecium, which is a single-celled organism. And uh, it is uh, small enough to uh, swim through a blood vessel, for example. So long-term, we think that these biorobots are more than a biotechnology tool. They could be adapted uh, to, say, excavate blood clots, for example, in uh, major blood vessels. So that is a long-term goal of these uh, types of robotics we are, we are
0: developing. No, these sound really cool, kind of out of sci-fi. <laughs> so it seems like your interests are really very wide-ranging. So you cover lots of different sort of areas and interdisciplinary kind of areas. Mm-hmm. What would you say sort of motivates you the most in your work or the, the thing that interests you the most?
1: Yes, I, I mean, even though we are constrained by the need to get money, and obviously I. I I'm aware of that, and I'm uh, doing some projects simply uh, because they do interest me, but they are also fundable. Um, I, I try to do things that are that will, will yield benefits, uh, probably only relatively far in the future. Like these bio robots, they are not going to be injected into patients in the next five years, uh, but uh, they use new concepts. It's not that. I'm the only one thinking about this, but still, in robotics, using biological tissue is fairly uh, uh, left field, I guess. Um, and uh, in particular, with this reg- with regards to these uh, uh, neuroprosthetics I've discussed earlier, it is also the issue of how we are going to interact with technology long term. So are the interfaces we're using to interact with computers, for example, Appropriate and are they suitable to exchange large amounts of information? And from uh, from that perspective, I think having a biological interface with a machine, in order to rescue uh, motor function in patients, I think uh, is not something that would uh, not just something that would be very useful for the patient. It is also a new avenue uh, to uh, to increase our capability as as humans and to uh, to treat conditions that would be completely untreatable with conventional medicine. Mm -hmm.
0: So there's a kind of thing that is only really possible in academia that other that companies would not really be able to work on, maybe?
1: Yes, I mean in a company you you can't do things that yield benefit in 20 years. That is way outside the scope of, of what you're paid to do, basically. Um, and uh, there are also advantages of working in companies, I would say, but uh, the ability to, uh, to follow long-term strategies um, within a relatively small group, I don't have to move hundreds of people around, um, that is, I think, a benefit of working in academia. And that is what, the reason why I'm still in academia.
0: Great. And as we're talking about the future, um, what's next for you and your lab?
1: Well, I guess first we have to recover from COVID nineteen. Uh, that is going to be a challenge uh, all scientists are facing, and uh, hopefully within a few months go back to normal operations. Because uh, if you, yeah, if you can only work at ten or twenty percent of capacity, you'll never be able to carry out projects. So that is the next step, and then um, I think uh, I will continue with this uh, two-track approach so I will continue to work on diseases I will expand uh, the type of diseases we are uh, modeling uh, to others that relate to motor functions such as uh, muscle dystrophies and epilepsy Uh, and uh, I will also do my best I guess to uh, follow the more outside the box uh, approaches uh, such as hybrid robots or, or biological machines I think that is something Uh, that will take a long time to develop and that will probably occupy me until the end of my
0: career. Great. Well, yeah, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for listening.
1: Thank you very much.